welcome back to Tuesday at Dobbs's. This week's episode is sponsored by XL Moto. That's the one-stop shop for all things biking related. This month I'm trying out a range of their Ryden Suns gear, which is retro, modern, classic inspired biking gear. But if you're in the market for anything from maintenance bits for your bike, aftermarket parts, clothing, go and check them out. They've got pretty much everything for everyone. This week, I begin from a WhatsApp, or I begin with a WhatsApp message my dad sent me. It's with regards to the amount of old vehicles on the roads in the UK. And I'm sure this will be indicative of pretty much every country around the world. I could not believe the figures on this. This is from The Telegraph. Have a listen. The cars on Britain's roads are getting ever older as net zero plans leave drivers in a tears about what new vehicles to buy. About 5.3 million cars on the roads are at least 15 years old, according to Car Marketplace Auto Trader. And this is up, have a listen to this, this is up from 1.7 million in 2001. So let me just let that soak in. 5.3 million cars on the road in the UK are now 15 years old. But that number was just 1.7 million 22 years ago. The number is expected to rise to 9.3 million within nine years time by 2032. And I can't say I'm completely surprised, but the figures are indicating the most gigantic shift in the cars on the road. Because when I passed my test in 2003, I bought a 1989 Vauxhall Nova. Let me put a pick up here somewhere. It was 14 years old at the time, it had fairly chronic rust, and it felt like a really old car. But fast forward 20 years or so, my Fiat 500 is 14 years old. You wouldn't dream of finding any rust on it at all, and it feels exactly the same as a modern car. I tested out, or I rented out, a Fiat Panda in Tenerife. That was about five months ago or so and it felt no better at all than the 14-year-old Fiat 500. I really think, at least when you're looking at the, the simpler cars that don't have many electronics, cars have very probably plateaued. They haven't got hugely more economical in the 10 years or so. They've all been well made for the past 15 years. They've all had excellent rust protection for 15 years. So I think there's been a kind of plateauing, not just for cars, but for motorbikes. And I think that with my Bonneville, every time I ride a different bike, yes, there may be better bikes on the market, but my Bonneville as a 2010 model has got to such a point in motorcycling's evolution that I never feel the need to change it because it's reliable, it's well-built, it always starts, and it's got the right amount of performance that I'd need. If I look at a brand new Bonneville T100, for example, it's got the exact same amount of horsepower now as it did 13 years ago or so when my bike first came out. So if I'm an example of a consumer nowadays or a larger and larger proportion of consumers, we just don't feel the need to change our vehicles as much. I just, I did not expect to see such such extreme figures there for the huge shift in vehicles. Okay, I'll move on. 
I wanted to do a little piece this week with regards to what's the best motorcycle that you can buy between one and two thousand pounds that you can do a multi-day, multi-thousand mile tour on. Something that will be all day comfort in the saddle if you're going for let's say six hours a day up to 400 miles a day and you're going for a week or so. And coincidentally, I got this message or I got an email that came through. Freddie, I was in, I was a London dispatch rider for three years from 1999 to 2002. I had a Kawasaki GT550 and it did 200,000 miles. So you're correct, bikes can do gigantic miles. One bike I feel you never mention, here it is, the Honda Pan-European ST1100. They're cheap, comfortable, but not very cool. Bradley, this is going to be my bike of the week. You've, you've read my mind here with what I wanted to demonstrate. A bike that can do it all, that will be reliable, that will be all day comfort, that you can do huge trips on. Because, I mean, even this one, it has panniers built in. Let me give you an example here. Facebook, what shall I use? Facebook Marketplace, I found ones at. 1,700, 1,800 pounds. But funnily enough, I then went on to Auto Trader, which I usually find more expensive. I found something. Someone grabbed this bike. Honda ST1100 Pan European. So type in ST1100 if you're on Auto Trader. 875 pounds. I'll just let that sink in. 875, it's black, it's got panniers on the left and right, it's got a back box just behind the passenger seat, it's got a huge front screen and I don't even need to test ride it to tell it would be all day comfort. It's a Honda so it will go on forever. It's of course an 1100cc bike and have a listen to this, it's a private seller. I'm quoting, here's my 1100cc pan-European, the photos may... <laughs> I didn't read this. The photos make her look better than she is, but she rides lovely. Comes with a year's MOT and a tank cover and touring bag, not in the photos. The reason for selling, I'm getting too old for her and I need a smaller bike. Thanks for looking, next MOT due in April, on April the 26th, 2024, so a year's MOT. I didn't realize that. Okay, a year's MOT. Is this final point I'm going to make a downside? Or is it just a testament to Honda quality? The mileage is 90,000. But someone, please, I'm going to include a link below. I'll, I'll put pictures up here. 875 pounds. Oh, it's just freedom machine level. It's perfect. Okay, I'll move on. In fact, before I get back to, to my usual notes, there was something I, I got from Ian. Ian, thanks for sending this over. This is quite interesting with regards to bikes when they hit 20 years old. I added this just at the last minute. Have a listen. So, I'm reading an article here from a paper, but I'm not sure which one. Now then, do you own a 1990s or early 2000s or slightly later Triumph machine? 
If so, there's a very interesting letter on the letters page inside. It appears that the factory are no longer supporting many of the models produced in these years by way of stocking or being able to supply parts for them, and it's becoming increasingly problematic for owners. I have no idea what the answer is, but now may be the right time to start a list of which parts can be used that are interchangeable, even if they're from a different make of machine entirely. So if you found such a part, please let everyone know what it is, what it's off and what it fits. I heard this before, probably a couple of years ago or so, that motorcycle manufacturers will keep producing and supplying used parts for motorbikes for 20 years after that bike goes out of production. After 20 years, maybe not specifically you're, you're left out on your own, but you more so have to either rely on the likes of eBay, for example, to pick up second-hand parts for your bike, or you have to rely on the bike having a significantly strong enough following for people to be producing aftermarket parts of spares. So it is definitely something to consider. Certainly, I remember my Suzuki Bandit 2002 model. I, even then, I'm sure I was buying everything secondhand for that off eBay. I'm sure I was. I'd be curious if anyone has problems with that. Older bikes, sourcing parts. Is it as simple as it's impossible to get parts for bikes new after 20 years old? Thank you, Ian. I move on. I want to continue here. 2017 bike prices versus today's used equivalents and also new 2023 bike prices. I wanted to take a closer look because a few people have said it would be interesting to hear what 2017 prices are like compared to brand new ones to see how much everything's risen. I've saved just three examples. I want to keep it concise. The first one, because I had a few people mentioning this, Royal Enfield Classic 500. May 2017, this bike would have cost you brand new £4,499. If I'm looking for a used 2017 Royal Enfield Classic 500, which are extremely rare, extremely rare I think people hold on to them, you'll need to pay £4,000. That means that in the space of six years, the bike has lost... £499, you're looking at about £75 a year depreciation. And bear in mind, I've found one of the cheaper ones there at 2017 model. You can easily pay four and a half k for a classic 500 from 2017, meaning you've lost not one penny in depreciation. What other vehicle is it possible to see those kinds of figures? And let me give two more. KTM 690 Duke. That was £7,799 back in May 2017. Now that model has been upgraded to the KTM Duke 790, so it's gone up 100cc. But the price is just 7999 meaning that in the space of six years, the KTM 690 Duke has evolved to an extra 100cc capacity, yet the price over the past six years has only gone up 5 200 pounds, so I was about to say 500, 200 pounds in six years. I almost have to do a 
double take with that. That is completely phenomenal. So you can go and get a 790 Duke now for under £8,000. And I'll do one more. The Ducati Scrambler Icon. £7,487 when this was brand new in May 2017. This price, now this has gone up £2,500. It would now cost you £9,995 to buy a Ducati Scrambler Icon. Let me put these two side by side. I'll put pictures of them both here. KTM 790 Duke at £7,999 next to a Ducati Scrambler Icon at £9,995. Am I missing something here? Or does the KTM look like a phenomenal deal? The KTM is an 800cc, the Ducati Scrambler is an 800cc. The KTM has 95 horsepower, the Ducati Scrambler has 73 horsepower. KTM dry weight, 169 kilos dry, and the Ducati dry weight, 173 kilos dry. Meaning that in every area on paper, the KTM wins hands down, yet the KTM is £2,000 cheaper than the Ducati Scrambler. Seems like a phenomenal deal. Uh, moving on. Nick, Moto UK. 2017 was a good year to buy new motorcycles. As you know, when I bought my Yamaha MT10 SP for £12,350, Due to price increases today, the same bike last year was £16,000. So when I recently thought about selling, they were selling a 2017 model at the dealer for just below £9,500 or even up until £10,500. I've even seen a dealer asking £13,000. Hence, I've kept hold of this bike as I only see in the next three years, prices rising. I move on. Oh, now this, JP. Yes, I just read this this morning. Freddie, I live in Canada. This is interesting actually, and this is some really useful advice. I live in Canada, but always wanted to tour Europe by motorcycle. After realizing that it's cheaper to buy than rent, Giant Motor UK had the exact motorcycle I wanted. So I've always got Milka's hair on me and I can feel it. Milka's Monica's mum's cat, really white fairy cat and just fur gets everywhere. I continue. Uh, Giant Moto UK had the exact motorcycle I wanted, which was a Honda Transalp XL 650V 2001 model. And so we made a deal for them to fully prep, tune up, uh, brakes, tyres, install engine guards, even install stuff. So install engine guards, soft bag rails, new cog and chain, MOT, ULES certificate, that's the ultra low emission zone so you can ride in London, etc, etc, for me to be able to pick the bike up after arriving in the UK. They helped me organise insurance, registration, road tax, and even throw in, threw in spare inner tubes and cables for the speedo, brake, and clutch. I had an incident-free adventure doing over 3,500 miles from London to Florence and back. At the end of the trip, they even offered to buy the bike back, but I asked them to store it for me for part two. I start part two this month with a ride from the UK to Spain and back via Portugal. I recommend the Transap highly. 
Let me give a bit of input here on maxi scooters. I've tried to be as broad as possible here and there was a lot of interest in this. First of three, Freddie, I've ridden bikes in the occasional scooter for over 30 years. When I decided to change for my Honda Shadow 1100, I seriously considered a maxi scooter. Practical, comfortable, reasonable price, I was very tempted. However, my experience with a little Honda PC125 put me off. In just over 12 months of ownership, there were three attempts to steal it. The last one, when I was sitting on it. I was drop-kicked off the scooter at the lights and then the thief attempted to batter me. I've practiced martial arts for many years and he was unable to, to land a single strike. Well, I can just imagine the scene now, Matrix style. When I, when I realized that it was the scooter that he wanted, I backed down as it wasn't worth fighting for. I don't feel that a scooter has much soul compared to a bike, but that could just be my biker prejudice, Haksan. Haksan, uh, I know I had a bad feeling I'd hear some of this. I may be wrong. There's a, probably a decent chance here that you're London-based and London bike crime is just totally, totally lawless. I had my, in fact, I had my motorbike attempted theft probably three times in four years. So nothing like your level, but I've heard scooters in London, they're just the most appealing form of vehicles to steal. Interesting. Moving on, Martin. MCN's Michael Neves, for anyone not in the UK, a big, well-respected motorcycle journalist. Um, MCN's Michael Neves recently said that if he could have only one bike, it would be a maxi scooter. Says it all, Martin. Let me do one more, Sage P. Freddie, I've been riding bikes of all sizes, mainly sport touring bikes for 30 years. It wasn't until I was in my late 40s that I got my first maxi scooter. It was fantastic. It brought all the fun back. I went out most evenings, rain or shine. It was only a 250 and to be, uh, and to be fair, just too small for me. But I wish I'd had one years ago. They're massively practical and so easy to scooter about on. Yes, you get ignored by 99% of your fellow bikers, but hey, I can't see the point of two-wheeled snobbery. We're all in it for the same reason. I wouldn't go back to a bike now. I don't have the commitment or the time, but scooters, now they're the way forward for me because they just fit in. Shame we don't have the culture or weather here. Nicely said. I move on to Alan. Freddie, ah, okay, okay. Instagram, Instagram page. Uh, I'll include the details below, but the Tuesday at Dobbs Instagram page. I shared a post about a Yamaha XS650 that came out in 19, 1976. Really, really beautiful bike. I'll put a pick up here. Stunning looking bike. You can get them off eBay and Facebook Marketplace for around about £3,000. You can get slightly cheaper if you're happy to do a bit of work on them, but let's say for sake of argument, £3,000. It's such a good looking bike, you could put it in a Yamaha dealership today and I would not bat an eyelid. It would be as good a looking modern classic as I would see anywhere from any other biking brand. It is a Stunningly well-proportioned, good-looking bike, completely stripped back, stripped back, just the most elegant lines. And is there a place for these bikes? 
in 2023. These, these old bikes, I mean, this is coming up now to 50 years old. Alan's got a bit of insight here. Those Yamaha XS 650s, they were great bikes that still command a good price too. Bonneville killers too, as they came in the days of the demise of Meriden Triumph, at a point when quality was at its worst as the workers didn't care about the brand they were representing and assembling. They were, are, reliable. They don't leak, reasonable handling and brakes, good electronics, electric start, electric start, important, and don't need constant maintenance to keep them running. Alan, Alan, thank you for that. That is all I needed to do a bit of research here. So if you're looking for one of these, let's say you want a, a classic bike. I've got a few hugely plus points. This is a bike that is as good looking as anything out there in the market. It is effortlessly, timelessly stylish. Really, stop in the street good looking. Three grand. No tax in the UK. In the UK, any vehicle, and it's rolling, any vehicle over 40 years old is road tax exempt, meaning you don't pay a penny in annual tax to have your vehicle on the road. So no tax to pay. Bear in mind, my Bonneville's tax is 110 pounds a year. So that's gone, forget it. Any vehicle 40 years or older is exempt from the ultra low emission zone. So you don't have congestion charge. You don't have ultra low emissions charge. You don't have any vehicle tax to pay every year. And guess what? The final thing, any vehicle over 40 years old, no MOT needed. So you don't need to go for your annual MOT checks either. You can just work on the bike yourself and you don't have any other worries. This is big potential saving. And are we at a point now Let's say you go for a Yamaha XS650. Let's say it's a 1980-ish model. Is it just in the realms of reliability enough or of reliable enough where it can be a genuine mode of transport and not just a classic to have in the garage? That is a really strong proposition for a usable modern classic, surely. A usable modern classic, a usable classic. I move on, hi Freddie. Just talking tires. This is going to be controversial. Have a listen, let me know your thoughts. Freddie, just talking tires. I was sick of paying through the nose for bike tires, and I still am. Which I have read is just, sorry, I was sick of, let me just reread that, it's pathetic reading. Just talking tires, I was sick of paying through the nose for bike tires and still am, which I have read is due to the technology that goes into them. What a load of rubbish. When I had my Honda VTX 1800, I went to the dark side and I put a car tire on the back to save some money. The tire cost me 15 pounds for part worn and 12 pounds to get it fitted. I did a bit of research to see which tread pattern was best and what pressure to run it at. I attach, a couple of photos for you to see. It was definitely a strange experience, but one which I got used to. Yes, I eventually changed back as I hit winter and given the state of our roads, wanted to make sure my insurance paid out if the worst should happen. Very interesting. But the car tire was no more worn out when I changed it than when I put it on. Straight line acceleration was amazing, as was braking, and cornering put no more or less tread down on the road than a conventional bike tire. 
The only difference was the strange feeling when cornering. The rear wheel, or the rear tyre, sorry, on full lean in a corner is slightly offset to the front, but you do get used to it. I would definitely do it again. It made me think, why was there a one to two hundred pound difference in price? Also, I would never think of getting a part-worn bike tyre, but always do for my car. Are bikers being ripped off? I think so. Dale. Dale, I know of a few people who do exactly this as well. There's a name for this, I forget the name, but putting car tyres on your motorbike. If anyone's got any either horror stories about that, or if anyone swears by it and has done it for years with no issues at all, I would be fascinated to hear and I'll definitely share that. I'd love to know, has someone been doing this for years with no issue, car tyres on a bike? Let's wrap it up with Sienna, final one for this week. Freddie, when I first started my motorcycle journey, I was really struggling to see myself on any motorcycle. All my friends were buying Japanese bikes, both naked and sports bikes, but they never really appealed to me. It wasn't until I found out about Royal Enfield that I actually found a set of bikes that I could really see myself riding and enjoying. So after obtaining my license, I found a second-hand 2017 Royal Enfield Classic 500 in Battle Green. I fell in love with it almost instantly. I was 20 at the time, working a minimum wage job, and I worked my ass off to save up, and I bought the bike for 7,000 Aussie dollars cash. This wasn't just a bike for me. It was a representation of my transition to adulthood. I'd done everything myself without the help or blessing of my parents. It was a decision that I stuck to for nine months. I arranged and got the lessons. I booked my test. I worked hard to obtain this goal. Fast forward two years, things changed quite significantly. I'd gone from living in an inner city shared flat to living in my own unit on the outskirts of the city. My minimum wage job got replaced with a much better paying job. At the time, the Classic made a lot of sense. It was cheap on fuel and insurance. It was a great bike for the city where speed isn't a focus and the curb appeal was amazing for cafe runs. I met so many great people who told me amazing stories of motorcycles from the 60s, 70s and 80s. For some context, I live in Australia. Living on the outskirts of the city means I'm at the mercy of doing long highways. For example, my commute to work is about 40 minutes of traveling at 100 to 110 kilometers an hour, which is the classic, uh, which the classic was really struggling with. Just jumping in here, it's interesting to hear an owner and the limitations of a Royal Enfield Classic 500. So it was struggling uh, to do extended periods on the motorway. I started to run into into many mechanical issues with the bike due to this need to do higher speeds for longer distances. It just got to a point where I wouldn't ride it for months. You know, this is what I often find with, with certain bikes. If either you've got slightly the wrong bike for your needs or if the bike is maybe just too old or too highly strung and too unreliable, it just means that sometimes you don't end up riding it and that can be a gradual process which, which it looks like you found here. It's very interesting. So I'd find out that I, I got to a point I wouldn't ride it for months. I now was in a predicament. 
I had a bike that I loved with all my heart rotting away in my garage. It took me four months of deeper thinking to finally make the decision to let her go. Now a new problem arose, what to replace her with? The practical answer, or the practical answers, were things like adventure bikes, naked bikes, or cruisers. But every time I looked through the dealerships, nothing ever grabbed me the same way the classic did. The one bike that I did fall in love with was a, a Triumph Scrambler. However, that was very much out of my reach. For context, the Street 900 is about $19,000 and the top end 1200 Scrambler in Australia, $26,000. Uh, not to mention the insane insurance and registration costs on top. I've heard this before, I haven't shared this info for a while from, from the Aussie riders. There are colossal setup fees and I think annual costs that you've got to pay to, to own and use a motorcycle in Australia. I think it can go into the thousands. I continue. I was at a complete loss until I stumbled across a very intriguing bike. It was an Italian made bike with a Chinese engine and it captured the same styling of the Triumph. It was called the Fantic Caballero 500. I'd initially dismissed it due to the engine. My experience with Chinese engines had been that of pit bikes that would always fall to pieces. It was still a bit of a gamble for me. There was only a single dealership that sold Fantic bikes in my state. And even then, they mainly sold KTMs and Hondas. So this was an experiment for them. Only two Fantics had been sold at that dealership so far. So as far as I was concerned, I was buying a completely unknown and unproven brand in Australia. But I rolled the dice, traded in the classic and bought the Fantic and I haven't looked back since. Its speed was perfect for the highway, its curb appeal rivals that the classic. I get more people asking about my bike than I did before. I've also unlocked two new hobbies, dirt riding and motor camping. Since then, the classic has found a new home with an older gentleman who has taken very good care of her. I'm still a little upset that I had to give her away, but that has been mitigated by the memories and adventures I have been on since acquiring the Fantix. So my questions to you are, three questions. Have you ever had a motorcycle that you genuinely struggled to let go of? Maybe my Triumph Speed Triple, maybe, but even then I, I felt like I wanted to sell it that is literally the only one for me, maybe Triumph Speed Triple. And even that's only a maybe because by the end I was probably happy to sell it. Second question, if so, how did you go about dealing with those feelings and what did you replace it with? Yeah, I find, I find the excitement of, of getting a new bike totally outweighs the sadness of selling an old bike. I sound so shallow there. I know I always say about my Bonneville, I've built a weird attachment to it, and I have, but I do also move on incredibly quickly. So I could see, for example, in the future, what does almost make me sad thinking about it. Let's say one day I sold the Bonneville. Yes, I would be, I would be sad. It would be the bike that I would miss most out of any bike I've ever owned before. That's no question at all. But I would think probably that getting a new bike and the excitement with that, because I'm so shallow, would, would maybe 
soften the blow of getting rid of the Bonneville. But even thinking about selling the Bonneville, ooh, I don't know if I could do it. I really don't. Uh, and final question from Sienna. Out of the scramblers you've tested, if you had to choose one, which would you pick? Oh, Sienna, that's a fantastic question. I've ridden the, the Triumph Street Scrambler 900, Triumph Scrambler 1200, that's the massively bigger brother, the Frantic Caballero 500, and also importantly, the Royal Enfield Scram 411. I, I've taken every single one of those off-roading apart from the Fantic. Although I do think the Fantic out of all of them will probably be the most fun off-roading because I just really strongly got that feel from it. And it's so much lighter than the others that I think that is the best suited for off-road riding, the Fantic Caballero. Triumph Scrambler 1200, very impressive bike, but it is just too big and heavy for, for fun off-roading. Let me give an example, Sienna. Uh, there's this off-roading section near where I used to live in Kent, just on the outskirts of London. It's a brilliant green lane where anyone can ride off-road and it's free to use. And I took a, a Royal Enfield Himalayan there and with that 20 horsepower, I was ripping up this off-roading track, full throttle, really giving it as much as I possibly could. And the amount of power meant that I was never losing the rear end. I could push it to the limit and it was so unspeakably fun at that limit. And if I would drop it, it's fine. It's a small bike that's so easy to pick up, easy to maneuver. I could manhandle it, rip it around the place. It felt like it was perfectly set up for off-roading. And because it's so cheap and so rugged, I don't care if I drop it at all. I can just literally drag it along the floor to get to a, a flat spot. And about a month after having the Himalayan, I took the Triumph Scrambler 1200 off-roading to the exact same spot. I, I didn't have fun on it, off-roading. I really didn't. Way too much power. The tires that come with it as standard are, in essence, road tires. So I got to a, a section of wet mud, and I'm not joking, this huge 1200 scrambler couldn't ascend a, a wet, muddy slope any more than that, even in off on, uh, even in off-road mode, it wouldn't go up. And then there's so much power and it's so high and the seat is so high and it's heavy. Uh, it's just too much for off-roading. There were bits that I would go on the Himalayan, attack steep slopes, get up on the Himalayan with no issue at all. I wouldn't dare even try it on the, the Scrambler 1200 because it's just too big. And with standard tires that you get out of the showroom on the Triumph, you can't get up any muddy slopes at all. So I would discount the Scrambler 1200 just from that point of view because for off-roading it's not as fun. And I would actually say the same about the Triumph Scrambler 900 as well. I would favour the Scram 411 and the Fantic because if I'm looking for an all-rounder bike that's fun off-road and on-road, then the Scram 411 Fantic Caballero will be much, much more fun than the Triumphs for off-roading. So the best one, Sienna, Royal Enfield for me, Scram 411. That's my favorite one. The reason being I found it slightly more pleasing and relaxing on road than the Fantic. However, I will say those Fantics are superbly good looking bikes. And you're right, they're proper head turners. 
extremely cool. And I've had a few people asking me to mention these in a podcast episode because these are these tick a lot of boxes, these Fantics. New prices, what are we looking at? £6,400-ish, which is perfectly fair value. And used price for a five-year-old Fantic Caballero, about £4,500. So they keep their value quite well. You'll only lose about £1,900, or you will only have lost that in the past five years. It's a very, very good shout and good to hear from an owner. Sienna, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's or watching this week's episode. Have a fantastic week all, and I'll speak to you all in the next one.